So when I when I applied for my first ER job, you were required the one of the tests was you had, you had to be able to do a splenectomy, a C-section, and a GDV. And I uh, had never done, I'd been out maybe a year and a half, never done a G GDB in my life. So I lied because I needed to get the job. <laughs> and of course, two days, here I am, I'm by myself, GDB walks in. Ooh, ooh. I had to call the uh, one of the attendees and her, her response was, I thought you said you knew how to do a GDB, but uh, I still remember that. <laughs> I remember um, when I was um, uh, providing clinical advice, we get phone calls from around Australia about providing clinical advice. And I'd never done a GDB myself, but I understood the theory. And this poor guy in the middle of Midwestern New South Wales in the country rang up and he was anxious and sort of uncertain. And I talked to him through how to do a GDB. And I never told him that I'd never done one before. <laughs> he just needed a calm and confident voice on the other side of the line. I'm like, okay, so what do you see here now? And I, I'm visualizing this because I've just seen it for myself. So, <laughs> but it went well. And um, yeah, so. You do, yeah. you do realize I am recording, Gerard. <laughs> uh, you, you, you can share that one. You can share that one. Uh, oh my God, what's going on with my computer? Okay, sorry, I said it again. <laughs> Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gerardo Polly. And this, I'm oh, sorry. One of the best bits of advice I've ever received was to find good mentors and to learn from them. Trusted people who have already done what you're trying to do now. I've been fortunate throughout my career to have some fantastic mentors to help guide me, but I realize that they'd be hard to find and also hard to commit the time to one. This is why we've gathered some of the best minds from the veterinary world and squeezed them for their wisdom so that you don't have to learn the hard way. With the help of our guests, we flip the veterinary profession on its back and explore its soft underbelly to find the tips, tools, and inspiration that you'll need to build the career that you've always wanted. I'm Gerardo Poli. I'm Hubert Hemstra, and this is The Vet Vault. Welcome to another episode of The Vet Vault. We hope that the new year has started off well for everybody. Gerardo, what's happening with your new year? 2020 is actually started with a bang. Um, incredible amount of work and effort has gone into uh, launching a new brand that Alex and I are starting, which is called Vet Success Academy. So keep an eye out for that. And also, both of us have been working in the backgrounds with regards to supporting veterinarians and the wildlife that have been affected by the bushfires. And we're about to launch on an almost around the world traveling trip, um, going to states to. Dubai and also the Philippines talking on topics like emergency and so forth. So, and then we've got heaps of guests lined up. Don't we, don't we Hubert? Yeah, we do. I saw you going to America. That's that you sort of sprung that on me. You can't just do that. What are you doing? In <laughs> what are you doing in America? My bad. That's why I was saying, that's why I said that we should do two podcasts right now because I've been gone for a month. <laughs> uh, you, you can't surprise me like that. I, I plan my year and then I see on social media that you've, Pissing off to America somewhere. <laughs> yeah, we certainly do have uh, some exciting guests planned. I'm very excited for this episode um, and some big things coming for the podcast this year as well, I hope. 
which brings me to our guest for today. Will you tell us about him, please? We were introduced to Dr. Dan Markwalder when we interviewed Dr. Cody Creelman, the cow vet, who kept referring to him as one of his best mentors out there. Seeing as we're all about mentoring here, we all knew that we need to have him on the show, and Dr. Dan certainly has the experience to make him an absolute mentoring guru. He founded his first hospital at the age of 28 and has grown that business into an 18 practice success story with the help of good partnerships and through fantastic mentoring relationships. He still practices in the clinics that he owns and he is passionate about mentoring veterinarians of all ages and in all aspects of their careers. Dan speaks throughout the United States of veterinarians and practice managers on the importance of developing a culture of mentoring at a practice level and frequently lectures at numerous universities around the States. He is also the Mark in Mark Roy Consulting, a consulting service that offers coaching and workshops on aspects of practice management, like leadership skills, bridging generational gaps in practice and team culture. Dan's most recent venture, Vet Mentor Solutions, aims to share the mentoring model that has been so instrumental in assisting many new graduate veterinarians in their hospitals to achieve their individual goals, as well as help them in raising their personal production with the greater veteran community through an online mentoring platform. We'll put the links to that in the show and you have to go check it out. Dan's insights in this interview on what mentoring actually means and how we can and should apply it in our own workplaces has given me personally a lot to think about in my own workplace. And if you've ever wondered about whether you should consider practice ownership or if you are a practice owner, you really do need to hear what Dr. Dan has to say on the topic. He discusses topics like choosing your business partner, setting the culture of your practice, what it looks like to be a good practice owner and much, much more. So please enjoy Dr. Dan Markwalder. Dr. Dan Markwalder, welcome to the Vet Vault. Thank you very much for joining us. We are honored to have you. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'll start first off with, with how we came across you. We, we interviewed Dr. Cody, Dr. Cody Creelman, um, who is a, a friend of yours, or I think a, more of a mentee of yours. Um, and he kept name dropping your name. Uh, and one of the things he, he said about you is he said that he has this friend that whenever he meets somebody, he asks them, who are you mentoring at the moment? Um, and that was, that was obviously you. And I, I knew immediately that we, that sounds like somebody that we had to chat to on, on, on our podcast. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to lead that straight into a question and, and ask you why is mentoring so important to you? Um, and, and more than mentoring, why is being a mentor so important to you? I, I think we all know why, we, why the young vets or why all of us need mentors, but why do you think it's important to, to be a mentor? You know, I think uh, as somebody who's been involved in veterinary medicine, I started working at my first practice at age 15. Wow. I went from delivering afternoon newspapers to working at my first veterinary hospital. And I'll never forget the, the guy I worked for, a single practitioner. He's 83 years old, still practicing to this day, just gave up surgery, believe it or not, uh, last year. And uh, he was really the first mentor I ever had. And uh, his run requirement was if you hold a dog and I'm working on him and I get bit, just walk out the door. That was my first <laughs> mentoring experience, by the way. And uh, I spent um, 
all my years through high school and all my years through undergraduate and um, the summers that I had off uh, during veterinary schools working for him. And he just really showed me the love affair that he had and that I, that I caught with veterinary medicine. And it really instilled in, into me the responsibility that we have to mentor other individuals. And so um, from the time I started my first veterinary practice back in 1994 to this day, uh, it's something that has just been part of my DNA. I love mentoring young doctors and it's part of the culture of my organization and it's a passion that uh, that i have and uh, every opportunity that i have uh, whatever format it may be i talk about the importance of mentorship and we all know that it's the big uh, the big topic today so many young veterinarians want it mm -hmm. and we hear so much about it um good and bad but uh so it's a passion that i very much have and and every time I have a platform, I, I talk about it. Wow. Wow. I love it that that, it, um, that that passion started way back before you even sort of, you know, really kind of kicked into your own career. But and then the the thing which is really powerful about it is the fact that you, you know, create a culture around mentoring. And what, what, what do you think then, I suppose, would be some prerequisites around like a culture of mentoring. Like if, if, if you could answer that, like is there a program or a structure you put in place to support the, the vets stepping up so then they then learn how to be proper mentors themselves or? I think for me, foundationally, the importance of mentorship is time and trust. Time and trust. And what I always tell people is if you don't have a commitment of time towards being a good mentor, then don't don't even start it. I always say, what a kids, how do kids spell love? T-I-M-E. It's time. And it takes time to build trust. And so foundational to a mentorship is a relationship. The most important asset that each one of us has is our time, right? And how do we spend that time? And so really, if you want to develop a culture of mentorship, it has to start with the leaders of that organization. And so many years ago, when I started my practice, I said from day one, we're gonna have a commitment to mentorship. And that's not just for our veterinarians, that's for every, every aspect, every individual who's in our organization. And so for me, mentorship is part of the culture. What drives the culture? It's really leadership, right? And what is the culture? Really, if you start at step one, what's culture? it's the thoughts and the attitude. So it has to start with the leaders of that practice. And so I'm always asking that question. You're either in a mentoring relationship, you're either in a, acting as a mentor or as a mentee. Mm. And that has been something that from the get-go when we started our organization, that's been really the basis of who we are and what we want to do. Do you feel that actually having that, you talked about having that culture of mentoring and, and how it's, you know, words, action, behaviors, that it kind of put the responsibility of them um, at the start that they had to almost like role model the way moving forward. Like if you want to stay in this organization, you, you learn off the role models, but then sooner or later you're going to become a role model. So there's this expectation that you, you know, exhibit the core values, that you believe in the core values and you know, that whatever comes out, you know, whether or not it's your thoughts in your head and your, or the words that you speak or the actions that you make, um, you have to role model the way and, and 
does it is it is that helped in terms of um, kind of really uh, have veterinarians in your organization that kind of stick and stay along and, and stay in in a part of like just I don't know become part of long term furniture almost in a way. I think the role model is absolutely foundational to mentorship. But the question that you have to ask, if you want to be in a mentoring relationship, what is it that you want to have modeled? And I think particularly nowadays, mentorship has changed. And I think that to me is one of the, one of the messages I like to get out. Mentoring today has radically changed. The, the example I use um, is Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga, right? Tony Bennett, 90 some years of age, um, of a generation, I can remember growing up having my grandmother listen to Tony Bennett. I left my heart in San Francisco. And here's Tony Bennett in a mentoring relationship with Lady Gaga. I love that because the mentor today is as much an intern as he or she is a mentor. What do I mean by that? They're learning from their mentee. So mentorship today is very much a two-way street. I learn as much from my new graduate veterinarians as hopefully they learn from me. They're a role model for me, and hopefully I'm a role model for them. And I think when you have that kind of a view towards mentorship, to me, that's what creates that stickiness and builds that relationship, builds that trust, which, again, is so foundational to a mentoring relationship. Mm. Mm. You, you mentioned time as, as one of the key components to that relationship, which can be a challenge in in veterinary science in general many practices it's it's busy everybody's busy even the even the leaders are often busy how do you guys deal with that do you do you allocate specific time for mentoring or, or what what's your strategy to to making that possible to allocate that time yes i think i think you have to have a formal and an informal part of mentoring and so a couple of things that we've done throughout the years, one is we used to take some of our most senior doctors, doctors that have been out 10 plus years and have them mentor, for instance, new graduate veterinarians. And what we found was to help develop that initial relationship is we've taken some of our younger doctors that have been out maybe two, three, four years, and they are our frontline mentors to our new graduate veterinarians. What we require is they are working together virtually 80, 90% of the time. And then we'll formally have them meet at minimum a once or twice a week. So we'll typically have them go out for an hour and a half, two hour lunch, twice a week. They'll go through cases. They'll have very formal three months, six months, nine months, 12 month goals. And those goals are individualized based on the wants, needs, and desires of those new graduate veterinarians. But what we found was is that what we call the mentoring moments are some of the most precious when we metric this after a year. What we find is those mentoring moments. Those are those informal moments. It could be 30 seconds. It could be a 60 60 second conversation that this new graduate veterinarian has with their with their mentor. It may be coming out of an exam room, talking with them, uh, going over a case, going over differential diagnosis, those types of things. So I think you have to have a formal and an informal, but you also have to have a layer of accountability. So one of the things that we will do is we will actually have a mentorship contract. 
so that each parties understand what their commitment is, right? When you have a commitment, think of it. When you sign a contract, maybe you sign a mortgage, a bank note, what does that stipulate? It stipulates what your responsibility and your role will be and the responsibility of, for instance, whoever the uh, other party might be. So you sign that contract and it just gives an additional layer of, I think, of accountability. Now, one of the things that we've realized is that, again, mentorship is so much based on a relationship. And sometimes it clicks, sometimes it doesn't. And so you also have to have that layer of flexibility to say that if that relationship is just not developing, can there be off ramps as far as that goes? So those are some of the things that we do in our mentorship. Mm. Yeah, I love the whole, the, the structure around because I suppose, you know, if they're communicating on a day-to-day basis, but then they have those check-ins, which are a bit more formal and structured around how they're progressing towards their goals and you know, where they need structured support from and so forth. The combination of the two really is like someone there when they need them, but then someone there to help them with their career progression and keep them on track. I think what happens many times to go back to your question is what do you do in a busy practice? Particularly in the state, it's what we have is a lot of veterinarians are on production-based income. They're busy. And so they may see, even though they may have the desire, I want to be a mentor, the reality is this, I need to produce if I'm not seeing X amount of cases. So there is that tension involved with a veterinarian who's very busy, a very busy caseload. And if they're taking the time out of their busy day, that can affect their production. That's just the reality check. So one of the things that we will do is we will say this, okay, new graduate veterinarian, they're going to be in surgery. We will assign them a mentor who comes along with them, helps them do surgery. But guess what? We will pay them to mentor that individual. So their production is not affected. Now, some people may look at that and say, well, we just don't have the financial wherewithal to do that. And my response is you don't have the financial wherewithal not to do that. We have a responsibility to show a new graduate veterinarian how to become a high performing, a high producing doctor. It breaks my heart that we have new graduate veterinarians who are not paid at the compensation that they should be paid. We have a responsibility to show them how to become a high producing veterinarian. And I think one of the ways you do that is you take some of your high producing, your high performing veterinarians, you still compensate them, but come alongside these younger veterinarians and show them um, the, the techniques, be it surgical, medical, ultrasonography, those types of things. So that's one of the things that we'll do as well. That's excellent. That's really useful. Uh, are, they, are they common pitfalls when, so it sounds like your mentors start being mentors at a fairly early on in their career. Do you, are there common mistakes that you see them make in their mentoring role that, that, that you think are best avoided? I think some of the pitfalls that we will see is first is a relationship. If it clicks or it doesn't click. And, and again, you have to have, you have to have off ramps if that'll happen. The reality is not all of us um, get along with other individuals. It's, it's just a relationship. And again, foundational to mentorship is a relationship. So what do you do if the relationship is not working? Um, so you have to have, you have to have some, some aspect to deal with that. 
I think the other things would be if you're connecting somebody who doesn't have the same wants, needs, and desires. So for instance, let's say you have somebody who is a new graduate veterinarian and they don't have a strong interest in surgery. If you align them with somebody who loves surgery, probably isn't going to work. So alignment is very important. So what that's based on is you need to sit down with that new graduate veterinarian or that new veterinarian and say, what are your goals? Where do you see yourself? What are your passions in veterinary medicine? What niche do you want to fill? And make sure that you have a mentor who can help that individual who's also passionate with the things that that new graduate veterinarian is passionate as well. If not, it's going to be difficult to develop that mentoring relationship. One of the things that we tell new graduate veterinarians is it takes minimum 18 months to 24 months to get you a confident, high-producing doctor. So this is really a one-and-a-half to two-year commitment. And so one of the things that we have to do early on is, again, recognize what are the goals for that individual. One of the things that I will ask a new graduate veterinarian is, what does mentorship look like for you? This is one of the things that I talk about when I um, speak uh, throughout many veterinary colleges. What does mentorship look like for you? That, that word is thrown around so much today. The reality is mentorship could be very different in one organization from another organization. Mentorship in one organization might be you're, a, you're in a three or four week mentoring relationship, or maybe it's going to be nothing more than videos and textbooks and those types of things. So what does mentorship look like? What are your goals? I say this a lot to new graduate veterinarians. You should be able to articulate what your three, six, nine, 12 month goals are. And so for us, mentorship is very much an individual. It's not a cookie cutter approach. What works for one individual is not gonna work for another individual. We just rolled out at our hospital um, about a year ago, right? a formal structure called independent development um, review and plans. And it's, and it's around that it's around kind of what do they want to achieve and then kind of articulate, articulating their goals clearly, but also real goals that are actually measurable. And so instead of go, I'd like to feel more comfortable in the consultation room. It's like, well, how can you measure that? Because they actually could be feeling a lot more comfortable in the consultation room, but then they may actually not, realize it because they're waiting for a feeling to occur or something like that. So, but having, yeah, I, I totally agree Dan with what you're saying that having um, a structured program with clearly articulated goals that are individual to that, to that person is really important. And it's made a dramatic difference for us in terms of, um, how would you say career reward? Like I suppose you know, our senior vets now feel like as if they, now have an impact on other veterinarians on the veterinarians that come through and see the impact of their contributions and it's added this it's added this extra layer of of um i suppose um yeah just meaning to their career now instead of just them being emergency veterinarians so yeah i love everything you're saying it's it's, it's incredible it's really cool well here's here's a perfect example we know that for instance for many new graduate veterinarians they struggle with time management and confidence, right? And so one of the things that we will do is we will put video recorders in the exam room. 
and we'll go ahead and record. We do this with all of our doctors. So it's not just, we're just, we're just doing this with new graduate veterinarians. Just, we don't want them to feel that they're just being singled out for this, but we'll show them. And this has been an incredible tool to help build their confidence because you know, and I know about 85% of communication is nonverbal. So let me give you an example. I had a veterinarian who was really struggling with owner compliance. And he knew it, the metric showed it. So one of the things we did is we, we had him videoed. And something as simple as what he was doing during the exams is he was sitting on the table behind him and it showed him he was slacking and it showed his nonverbal. And it had a powerful impact on this veterinarian, something as simple as that. Um, and so what we have to do is we have to have tools in our toolbox. And so ultimately at the end of the day, Mentorship is don't get comfortable. What are, one tool may work with one new graduate, may not work with another one. And so a mentoring moment, a 30-second mentoring moment may work with one, may not work with the other. And so you need to be able to be adaptable in your mentorship relationship. I think that's absolutely critically important as well. Again, foundational is relationship, but add tools to that toolbox. So for instance, I'm an older gentleman. I'm in my, I'm 55 years old. Social media does not come normal to me. I still struggle with doing a selfie. One of the reasons I'm on Instagram and I do social media, because that is a great way to be able to communicate with younger veterinarians. So my point is this, as a mentor, if you're going to mentor somebody, find out best ways to communicate with that individual. And that means adding more tools in your toolbox. So hopefully that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a question I had for later on um, when we come to actual practice management. How do you communicate with your, with your team? Because you, you have a, it's a big group of clinics. Uh, how, many, how many clinics at the moment have, do you, are you a, a part owner of? I have 18 hospitals. 18. So, so how do you maintain communication with a team like that over so many sites? Yeah. I think everybody's individual. Uh, email is still probably the predominant way that I will communicate. Um, but I've also learned that texting becomes very important as well. Um, particularly some people, they're not going to respond to an email for days. So it's texting. I still love a lot of FaceTime. So I have the way that our organization will work is I have, uh, even though I'm involved in 18 hospitals, um, I am involved with the, but we, each of our hospitals will have a managing partner and I mm -hmm. spend a lot of my time with the managing partners. Mm -hmm. I don't get to mentor a lot of new graduate veterinarians anymore. What I do is a lot of my mentoring relationship are individuals that have been out of veterinary school for at least one to two years and we're moving them into a partnership. So by the time I get a, um, a veterinarian, they've been out again one to two years, and then I'm starting to build into them and mentor them on the business, practice management, leadership development. And that's usually a one to two year uh, mentoring relationship at which at the end of that, they're ready for practice partnership, practice ownership. So a lot of my communication could be one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, it could be through texting, email, I try to spend as much time as I possibly can though with my mentees. Usually it's going to be a minimum of a three to four hour commitment each and every week. I, I, I heard a talk the other day that actually it was a 
I don't remember where, but I talk about millennials. Everybody likes to talk about millennials and and their preferred means of communication. And, and it actually showed that texts still get the highest response rate to any means of communication, including Facebook and everything else. If you send a text, people the people still don't ignore text, which I thought was an interesting one because we've tried all sorts of apps and you know group chats and things like that. Um, but then you have individuals who just don't, want to they just don't want to respond but i send somebody a text and they always get back to me <laughs> that, that definitely it's so works. true the same with my children it, it's true if you want a quick response texting is certainly the way to way to go dan we have a lot of people and a lot of um listeners who consider practice management practice ownership and things like that um is there a you know like what was your transition like did you did you purchase into or became a partner of the first hospital that you were in or did you create your own hospital or like, how did you, um, what was your transition into practice ownership? Yeah. So when I, when I became a new graduate veterinarian, um, still the model was you went to work for a veterinarian, typically work for that individual for a couple of years. And then the expectation would be, to become a partner. And that was very much how I thought I would cut my teeth. And so when I graduated, uh, went and worked at my first um, small animal practice. And after about a year, year and a half, you think I would have done my homework. This individual um, had never had a partner and the expectation, well, hey, I would be the first partner. The reality was um, that was not gonna happen. And so I had to make a decision and that was either to stay at that practice we loved the area, uh, was newly married. We had just bought our first house. Life was good. And so I had to make a decision. Was I going to stay there? The reality is I probably would not become a partner. On the flip side of that, I could disrupt myself and go ahead and find a practice or start a practice. And so here I was, newly married. I still can remember this. I came home and I said, honey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resign. And uh, my wife is not a change agent at all. <laughs> and uh, but uh, God love her, she uh, she supported me. And so we, I resigned. Um, she resigned her position as a nurse, and we sold our house, believe it or not, to a another veterinarian. And um, we decided to move out of the state around the Chicago area. And we started looking for practices. The reality was we're probably um, not going to be able to buy a practice. So we started our first practice in the suburbs of Chicago. It was a little leasehold space. It was 1,200 square feet, two exam rooms. And believe it or not, I um, started my first practice with uh, about 40,000 US dollars. And uh, I went to 28 banks and 28 <laughs> banks said no. Now, I didn't have a lot of debt, but I didn't have a lot of assets. And the yeah. scariest day of my life, I had to go to my grandmother, who was a product of the Depression. And I said, Grandma, would you borrow me uh, $40,000? And she literally had CDs under, you hear about these stories, under the mattress of her bed. And, um, you know, for her, $40,000 was $10 million to you and me. Mm. And uh, so it was, I always say it was the most difficult loan I ever had in my life. And it was the happiest day of my life was paying off that loan. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I started my first practice. I was, a, again, just a little leasehold space, 1,200 square foot. I could not afford to buy or to uh, have employees. So it was myself, 
my mother and my wife because I didn't have to pay my mom or my wife. <laughs> and, um, and I'll never forget because um, we started in March of 1994. And two weeks later, it was a Friday, and I would get to work at 7 a.m. and work till 7 p.m. So it was a 12-hour shift. And I want you to think about this, 12-hour shift, and I sold one bag of food. I still remember it was, it was uh, Hills WD, $8.60. So I probably made about $2. And I remember coming home. Now, again, we had highly disrupted our lives. Uh, we moved from a great place in Indiana to a one bedroom apartment. Here we are in the suburbs, put all of the money that we had into this practice. And after 12 hours, sold one bag of food. And I came home to my wife and I said, honey, I don't think we're going to make it. And I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, I know how good of a veterinarian you are. Now go out and show the world. And we never looked back. Wow, and um, six months later, things popped and we were growing three to 400 new clients a month. And uh, we tapped into something special. And I'll never forget when we broke our first $1 million in gross. I thought I was the, the richest man in the world. And, um, and it was, it's been a great, great, wonderful journey. So how old were you? Sorry. I, I don't know if I 20, 28 years old when I started my first practice. Yeah. That's so young. And I knew very little on medicine and knew nothing about leadership or business. I barely knew what a commercial checking account was, <laughs> but, um, so I made every conceivable mistake you possibly can think about. But, um, but as I always um, tell individuals, uh, you learn a lot by failing, that's for sure. And uh, my success in, in part is because I have failed multiple, multiple times. Yeah, yeah. It takes, takes, a, takes a fair amount of courage to be, to be willing to fail like that. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of people, a lot of veterinarians, and I, for a long time I counted myself amongst them, who, who didn't really have any interest in ownership, but it, it just seemed to me, and I think seems to, seems too daunting to a lot of people, to, to, especially that early in your career to go, well, I've got so much that I need to learn clinically. I can't possibly face with the face up to the, the challenges of running a business as well. Why, why was it important to you? It sounds like right from the beginning that that was your, that was your plan. Was that just the culture at the time or, or was that just always your, your personal goal? I think I would go back to my my mentor who I uh, started working for at age 15, and uh, he he really taught me that to be a practice owner um, is something that uh, that I should aspire for. And so I knew even before veterinary school that I wanted to be at least a partner or a um, or um, a practice owner. I, I pretty much knew that once I went to um, even before veterinary school. But for me, I think one of my passions is when I talk to young veterinarians is don't give up because I think the pendulum has swung. I, I was part of the culture growing up that practice ownership was pretty typical. I would say most of my classmates became partners in a practice or owners. And so for me, I grew up in that. And it seemed like the pendulum has swung the opposite direction we'll probably talk a little bit about some of the disruption and so forth and veterinary ownership and so forth. But at least one of the things that I try to communicate with young veterinarians, 
don't give up on ownership or partnership. There's a lot of incredible advantages. Is it hard work? It is hard work. But if you look at the studies that are out there, veterinarians who are owners have happier lives. They're more successful. Now there's different definition of successful, but one of those is there's just the financial success that you can have. You can have work-life balance and be a practice owner. Some have the idea that if you're a practice owner, you can't have work-life balance. And I would say just the opposite. Practice ownership gives you a lot of freedoms. Now, is it hard work? Absolutely, it's hard work. But if you have good role models and good mentors in your life that can come alongside you and teach you practice ownership, practice management, all of those types of things, um, please don't give up on that as a possibility. Mm. Yeah, I appreciate what you're saying there. Um, I had this similar discussion with someone just the other day about um, you know, what got me into business ownership and what made me want to buy into a hospital. And it, it wasn't necessarily around financial um, goals or anything like that, but it was, it was around the, some of the privileges and freedoms you get. Um, and privileges being the ability to have a say in the direction of a hospital and to influence the culture and standards and so forth. Um, but also the freedoms around sort of being able to select where I wanted my career to go to next and where I want to focus my efforts on. And I saw myself that if I stayed as a veterinarian um, in, in the cold front, then that would be kind of just the limits of where my career could take me. So it's, probably, it's been the best decision I've ever made. The, probably one that I ruminated on for years but ever since then, it's created so many doors of opportunity and different avenues for interest and, and for you know, continued professional development outside of just learning new you know, clinical knowledge. So I don't know, Hubert, what's it like for you? Yeah, same. same. I, I, I don't regret it at all. Um, exactly as you say, Dan, it is, it is some hard work, um, but certainly a, a lot more. It's that autonomy. Um, you know, one of those three key drivers that, that they talk about that, that make people happy. And the one is autonomy. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have autonomy in a in an employed job if you have the, the right leadership team. But certainly the autonomy I, I got through practice ownership has been a lot for me. And, and being in charge of your own time, making decisions to a large degree about your own time um, has been very valuable to, to me. And I, I would say I would say one of the things that that I'm passionate about as well, and I think this is is something that's a subset of ownership is partnership. And I think particularly today in the environment that we find ourselves in, because the reality is it is harder to become a practice owner today. We know that to buy your practice today, particularly if it has a, a certain dollar revenue or a certain uh, number of doctors, it becomes much more difficult to purchase those practice because you have other competing interests. And so one of the things that, that I, I talk about is the there's something about the synergy of a partnership. I've been fortunate of all my years of ownership. I've had a partner virtually 23 years of my 26 years of, of partner of, of practice ownership. And I love having partners because partners just add an additional dimension that you would not have potentially as a solo owner. 
And, um, and I think I've, if I look at my own career, I've, I've probably uh, had a, a more of a affinity towards the business practice ownership. Um, and, and so this has freed me up having partners. It's freed me up to do the things that I certainly have found enjoyment in. And that is creating. I love to create practices, buy practices, take them to the next level. Um, I've done startup practices. I've done ER practices. I've done tertiary care hospitals. You name it. I've been able to do it. But the reason I've been able to do that is because I've had partners along the way. And that's freed me up to do the things that I'm passionate about as well. Mm. So you mentioned some of the, the current stumbling blocks to, I mean, your story, starting your own little practice from, from scratch, is that still a possibility in this day and age? Is it something that people can do or, or is it, do, would, should, should you mainly look at becoming a partner in an established business such as your own? That's a great question. Um, I'm not going to say that, that startups or what we call de novos are for everybody. I am a big fan of startup practices, particularly in this given environment, when the reality is that old, older model of where you become an, a partner in the practice, the reality is it's, it's much more difficult, particularly if it's a multi-doctor practice, uh, again, because of some of the competing interests and so forth, and these multiple rates or what they call the cap rates to purchase these or to become a partner um, can be a, an obstacle. And so one of the other avenues to look at is a startup or a de novo. And uh, so I'm a big fan of it. Of my 18 hospitals, I've done 10 startups. We're actually doing a startup practice uh, in the city of Chicago, in one of the hottest areas of Chicago. And it's going to be a five-story, 30,000-square-foot startup practice. Wow. Uh, we've been trying to get into this area of the city for about five years and the individual who's going to be our managing uh, partner of that practice is a young veterinarian who's been out about four years, and he's been in our organization for two years. He could never have done this project by himself, but he's going to be a partner in this practice. And what's interesting with this guy is he has a, he has a strong interest and passion in real estate. And so he's a great, high-producing, high-performing veterinarian, along with a strong passion of real estate. So it was just uh, things came together, and we're excited about this project as well. So I would definitely recommend, um, if you're a young veterinarian looking for ownership, and there may not be an opportunity out there to purchase a practice, look at, look at a startup. The nice thing with startups is they're not as expensive. Some people get fearful because they say, well, I don't have a client base. I think location becomes very important. You have to find an area that uh, there's a need, a desire. I think increasingly, particularly as we're starting to look at small animal practice, there's so many different niches that you can fill. So what niche do you want to fill? So it really comes back to this. If you want to be a practice owner, why? What's your why? What's your mission? What's your personal mission statement? Why do you want to be a practice owner? For me, the financial remunerations come secondary. That is not in itself a good reason to become a practice owner. For me, it was, as you mentioned, it's autonomy. I wanted to create something special. I wanted to be involved in that process. I wanted to have certain things like a culture of mentorship. The financial remunerations come later. 
it is going to be hard work. Um, it does require a commitment of your time and your resources, but it's also an exciting process. And I think the opportunities for veterinary medicine, the future looks so bright. Again, I've been doing this since 1979. And the things that we're able to, to do today are just exciting, just exciting with innovation. Just think of all the, all the different things that we're able to do in, in veterinary medicine that just didn't exist 10, 15, 20 years ago. And what's great is pet ownership continues to be on the rise, right? We, we, we talk about the millennials. The good thing on millennials is pet ownership is gonna, it looks like it's as high, if not higher than boomers. We built veterinary medicine on, on let's face it, female boomers. That's dramatically changing now. And we have to understand what are the wants, needs, and desires for millennials. The good thing is they love their pets and they love veterinarians. They still look at veterinarians as the number one source for the well-being and care for their, for their pets. So what niche do you want to fill as a practice owner? That's what I always start with. Why do you want to be a practice owner and what niche do you want to fill? Hmm. I've got a, a question, Dan. Um, is it right to assume that out of your 18 practices that like all your partners are veterinarians, are they? Or, or the, the main person who's in charge of running the hospital, would they be a veterinarian? Yeah. So our, our managing partners are all veterinarians. Um, I think the key to your question is, can you be a non-veterinarian and be a practice owner? Absolutely. To me, partnership, there's, I look at a partnership like a marriage. And so finding that right partner doesn't necessarily mean that that individual has to be a veterinarian, but that partnership is a commitment. That is a commitment because there's going to be the, 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 the valleys and the mountaintop experiences, right? And what really will test a partnership is when you have those valley experiences. And, uh, and so it starts with, to me, a partnership starts with, you have to have a mission that you both agree on. What are your core values? What is it that you both, what I call the non-negotiables, what's going to be the DNA of your practice? That's the core values. So you both have to have an agreement on what those core values are going to be. Because otherwise when the valleys come and you, and you're trying to put a round in a square hole, it's not going to work. Right. So I think you can be a non-veterinarian and be a partner. Our model is such that it's, it's different because we take young veterinarians who want to be practice owners, but they don't have the financial wherewithal to become a practice owner. So we will bring them on as a full equity partner and um, after they've gone through our mentorship program. But I think the model would certainly allow for a non-veterinarian. Would you, would you feel, because when we're talking about um, productivity and profitability of hospitals and some, you know, veterinarians inherently aren't, you know, don't graduate with uh, business degrees or, you know, degrees in, in business management or MBAs and things like that. Um, Common sense sometimes even. <laughs> <laughs> true. But, um, you know, like the, the, there, there's this feel, there's this, there's this feeling, I don't know when that's in Australia or elsewhere as well, that, um, that maybe a shift towards having like a business administrator come through and run a practice, right? Because if they run through and they run through the numbers and they, they focus on, you know, keeping a, a practice sustainable, but 
what my take is that they still like for a veterinary team to feel like as if they're working towards um you know helping and serving clients and their pets they kind of feel like as if there has to be leadership that kind of really still does have at the heart of it the the clients and the pets at heart as opposed to so i suppose the, the question then comes down to in the end now that i'm talking through it is could a business person who doesn't ha have a veterinary background nursing or vet or veterinary really embody the the at the core what the veterinary and vet nurses kind of feel is important I think it's a great question. I think for me, there's three hats that you have to be able to wear as a partner or, or as an owner of a veterinary practice. The first one is if you're a veterinarian, you've got to be able to be the role model for the standard of care for your hospital, right? So for me, foundationally is going to be what level of care do you want for your hospital? And I think particularly nowadays, because there's there's different models out there. There are some models that are out there that are going to be, we're going to be high on preventative care, but maybe not so much on medical surgery. So what model of medicine do you want to have in your hospital? The second is leadership. For me, the difference between a successful practice and one that is just, just there is going to be leadership. And so you've got to be able to develop your leadership goals. And that means having a good mentor, developing leadership. For me, leadership is not necessarily you're born as a leader, but you can, you can develop as a leader. What does that look like? Because for me, leadership is foundational. And third is the business acumen. Look, veterinarians by their training, they're some of the most intelligent people out there. If you can get through veterinary school, you can learn the business acumen, but that means having a commitment to learning the business acumen. So you should be able to read a financial statement, a balance sheet, an income, a P&L. You should be able um, to uh, be able to have a conversation with a, a commercial banker, those types of things. But those are skills that you can learn, but it's a commitment to learning those skills. So again, to have a successful practice, it's the leadership, it's the medicine, and it's the business acumen. That's foundational. Those pillars are foundational. So ultimately, if your passion is only the medicine and it's not the leadership and it's not the business, then ownership may not be the right fit. Or if you still want to be an owner, ultimately, can you be uh, an owner and not have a passion on the business? I think you can, but you've got to be able to have individuals around you that can fill that void. To me, you absolutely have to be a strong leader and um, a commitment to whatever your hospital is going to be committed towards as far as that level of, of care and medicine. So, so you say you need to develop your leadership through mentorship relationships. Um, now, which is well and well and good in a in a clinic such as yours where there's a structured pathway to to partnership but again what if you're in a situation you the de novo practice or it's a small practice or uh, um the the current leadership team is not the correct leadership team where do you go to where did you go initially 
to develop your leadership skills? Yes. So um, for me, it was very much trial and error. So I'm a perfect example of somebody who, when I started my first practice, I didn't know a whole lot about the business. end. I didn't even know a whole lot about leadership. So here's a perfect example. I was 28 years old when I started my first practice and I still uh, um, looked like I was about 14 years of age. So here I was um, owning my first practice and I look like Doogie Hauser. I can still remember <laughs> going in the exam rooms and the clients going, um, when is the doctor coming in? Yeah. I am the doctor um, and the owner of the practice. And so one of the things that I remember that I did, though, is I went to a um, competitor of, our, of mine, um, a local veterinarian who had been practicing for about 30, 35 years. And I actually went to him and I said, look, would you be willing to meet with me once a week and just pour into me? And he did. And he became a strong mentor. He showed me how to read financial statements, how to manage staff, all of those types of things. And so I recognized early on the importance of if I have a void, how am I going to fill that void? So I went out and found myself a mentor. The other thing I did is I had a client early on in my practice who came in and he was just one of these clients who just had a lot of business acumen. We developed a relationship. He had been in the corporate world and then he went ahead and started um, uh, a small business and uh, we just hit it off and we clicked. And I remember going to him and saying, Hey, would you be willing to meet with me periodically and just teach me about business? Because the key here is this leadership and business is not just specific to veterinary medicine. Feel free to go outside of your field and find a mentor who can help you in leadership skills, who can help you develop business acumen. You don't have to have somebody just within the veterinary field. If anything, my encouragement is go outside of the veterinary field. Leadership is, is beyond just the veterinary profession. So I think finding that right mentor, but that means going out and finding that mentor. I think that's absolutely critical. One of the things, one of the projects we're doing in 2020 uh, through Mark Roy is, is, is coming alongside veterinarians that are ready for practice ownership and having a layer of accountability. And one of that is they have to find themselves a mentor who's going to come alongside them and teach them the leadership and the business acumen. Hmm. That, that took a lot of self-awareness of you back then to realize I, I suck at this. I, I need help. And then, and then a lot of guts to, to go to the competitor. I, I, and say, I, I think, I think my motivation was I had very little money and I, I couldn't afford to fail because my note to my grandmother would have come due. And so I think I was probably scared to death. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still just trying to picture what it's like to, to employ your own mother. How can you, <laughs> how do you tell your mom what to do? <laughs> it's funny. I, it, I'll tell you a quick story. So um, my mom, of course, being a mom, you know, I always had to be the nice guy. And uh, so I, when, when somebody couldn't pay their bill, I couldn't be the guy who, uh, who could demand payment. And one of the things we did early on, as I said, mom, no one can know that you're my mom. You just have to be a, an employee. And uh, so it was the first time in my life I called my mom by her first name, her first name. <laughs> and so I, I'll never forget the first time we had, 
we had a client who couldn't pay a bill. And of course my mom took it personal and, and, and came down on that client. I'm like, mom, you can't do that. You can't do that. (laughs) Believe it or not, she just retired about a year ago. She, uh, she's worked for us for many, many years. Oh, you're kidding. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I'm trying to picture how, how do you go with, um, with an employee performance review? With your mom in the room. <laughs> How can you do an honest review? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick story. So I buy, I buy um, practices that are typically about a one doctor practice around the Chicago area. And uh, we take these practices and we bring in these young, I want you to picture this, the, the average age of these practice owners are typically 70 to 75 years of age. And then we'll bring in a young veterinarian that's typically 28, 29 years old that's been through our mentorship program and we align them with one of these veterinarians. And so about three and a half years ago, I bought a practice literally right on the border of Chicago city limits, 73 year old boarded surgeon. So I want you to think of all the stereotypes (laughs) of a, um, of a surgeon. And here he is a phenomenal, phenomenal surgeon. And the first day I bought the practice, I had to go in there and um, convince him not to smoke inside the practice. So I want you to picture what that's like. So you name it, every kind of conceivable story I've, I've had, but there's something that is really powerful when you see these, these, these different generations coming together and something very powerful because at the core of veterinary medicine, it's very much an apprenticeship based profession. I truly believe this. And the same veterinarian who's now 76 years of age, I just was doing his review a couple of months ago. And, um, and he's a teacher at heart. And he said to me when I bought his practice, he said, Dan, I'm not a good business owner, but I'm a great veterinarian. I love to teach. And um, so uh, this, this practice, which was a one and a half doctor practice when we purchased it, is now a seven doctor practice. And he came to me and he said, Dan, I just want you to know I am the happiest I've been in over 30 years because I get to do what I love to do. And that is train young veterinarians. Wow. And I, I left there just feeling like a, a million bucks. That is, that is a special gift to be able to give to somebody. That is amazing. Gerardo, have you got anything? I've got nothing to come back from that. You know, that's pretty, that's amazing. <laughs> having an impact like that just you know it's not just that was one impact on one on one you know very experienced veterinarian but also the fact now that it's yeah like he's now been able to have an impact on seven other people right so it's like almost like this pyramid of impact that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger or just when you think of it that way it's like even bigger that's huge and i think that's important because you know the reality is this um if you look at in the States, the average owner today is in the early 60s. In the next three to five years, many of these owners will be gone. And they have an incredible gift. Think of the, the number of years of, of, of wisdom that they have, that they can impart to this next generation. And one of the passions that I have is bringing these two generations together. We know that the future of veterinary medicine um, is really in the hands of these young millennial veterinarians. They're going to write the next chapter. And as we pass that baton on from the, the boomers to now the millennials, 
I think there's these next couple of years are going to be some exciting years. And how do we bring these generations together where they're learning from each other? And, and I always say that, um, and I say this to my, to my older colleagues is that, um, you know, you have something to really offer. Um, what I call the people wisdom skills, the art of communication, how to get things done, how to work with people. These are the skills that the younger veterinarians really yearn to develop. What do they have? They have the cutting edge of veterinary medicine. And so there's something really powerful about that synergy that can come together with these generations. And so I'm excited and I want to be a part of that process. Hmm. That's inspirational. I feel like starting a new practice. <laughs> Gerardo, you're going to start a new practice. <laughs> well, were you, are you asking, you asking me to come and be your, your Padawan or your Jedi master, mate? So... <laughs> my mother. You can be my mother. <laughs> that's, that's, that's incredible. I, I've, I've taken so much from that. I, I've got a ton more questions, but I almost feel like we, we, we could wrap it up there. Um, there's, there's just so oh, much wisdom in there, Gerardo. How do, have you got anything I, else? I've just got one question, and it's, and it's based off that one there. Then one of one of our most common questions that we get asked or like our listener questions and um, is the challenge that actually um, uh, that the veterinarians face when there is such a, maybe a generational gap where... You know, like but what you highlighted there was was that the veterinarians come out, the new new grads come out with you know the state of the you know like the pinnacle of what where veterinary medicine is now, but the the people who the the experienced veterinarians who've been out for you know twenty years you know have have survived um, the profession. They've actually you know they've they've developed resilience, they've developed communication skills and so forth. Everything that's required to be successful. But then it's 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 the threat between the 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 threat of of the new grad not feeling like as if they're being listened to and wanting to you know practice the standard that they want to practice or being told they should practice, and then potential threat of of uh, an experienced veterinarian feeling like as if um, they're not respected or something. But the way you how, how have you how have you tackled that yeah. that, that, that challenge? Yeah, I, I think I think we we hear a lot of the different stereotypes that are out there, right? The millennial that only wants to work six hours a day or thirty hours a week, or the older veterinarian who is used to doing the things uh, their way that doesn't want to change. And there's, so there's first and foremost is we have to recognize that those stereotypes they may be out there, but it's really our job to break those stereotypes down. And I think there's something very powerful of bringing these two generations together. You know, the work environment, let's face it, a third of our life is in the workplace. And there's something special when then we're working together and we're talking to cases together. So here's a, here's a good example. I purchased a practice on the north side of Chicago. This was a boarded internist who had spent, who started his practice in the 1970s, single practitioner virtually his entire career. And I want you to think of all the different stereotypes. When I went into this practice, it's literally like walking into the practice that was built in the 1970s. He still had paneling on the walls, you, you name it, all the stereotypes that we can think of. And I had recruited a veterinarian from 
San Francisco, California. And I want you to think of all the stereotypes of <laughs> all the different political divides and so forth. And I, it was my job to bring these two veterinarians together. All right. So think of generationally, this was a millennial from San Francisco. Mm. This was a older gentleman uh, who was 72 years old on uh, the North shore of Chicago, a boarded internist. And uh, I brought these two together and, you know, they just, they worked together um, and they developed a very close bonding relationship because that's what the work environment will do. And I told both of them when we started, you have to have a commitment to listen to each other. So part of it is breaking down those barriers, working together, developing a personal relationship. We're bonded because we love pets. We love the clients that we serve. That's a bond that all of us share within our profession. And that can break down a lot of barriers as far as that goes. And so, you know, it's amazing. It's the little things that can really count. Going out to lunch, um, sharing a cup of coffee together. I remember the first day when this young veterinarian started and she's like, you know what? Um, I think I can do this. About two weeks later, she calls me up and she goes, I just want you to know the doctor gave me one drawer in his, in his desk that I could use now. So I think we've moved a long way to developing our relationship. No time, time, time is, I think the, the most important thing. And, and a lot of older veterinarians are willing to change. Do they need help? Absolutely. And again, that's why I go back to that model. We have to be as much of an intern as we are as a mentor today. And, and likewise, the, the younger veterinarians, they have a lot to offer as well, but they also have to be willing to be teachers and communicators. I had to learn how to use Instagram. I had to learn how to do a selfie. Guess who taught me? One of my younger veterinarians. And so there's something special when you're developing that relationship. So I, I think that would be my advice. Maybe the common thing here, because it sounds like they're all success stories, um, Dan, the, the common thing is you. This could be your next career pathway. Well, that's right. This is a current one, but it's purely just as a as an intergen intergenerational bar breakdown barrier coach or something like that. But there you go. Yeah. All right. I'm going to put that on my CV. Yeah. And, and, and selfie taker. There we go. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a, it's a good point though, Gerardo. Like how, Dan, do you play an active role in that? Because Gerardo's right. I, it is a, it is a problem that, that comes up a lot with young veterinarians where they go, well, I'm, I'm just not feeling that connection with my employer or my potential future business partner. These days. We're not, we're not gelling. Um, is, is the is the secret sauce having a third party who is an intermediary to smooth over that relationship? I do, um, but I also I also am a firm believer of communication, the art of communication. And so many times, look, when I buy some of these practices, these are practices that have not changed in 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And I'm a change agent going in there. Um, and so I try to take the things that they're doing extremely well and keep doing them and then slowly implement the changes that we want to see. And that's no different in developing a relationship. I'm always amazed at individuals that say, well, this isn't working out for me. Well, what are you do? What's your role? What's your part? You can't change others. You can only change yourself. So I'm a firm believer 
and what I call personal accountability. We have to ask the right questions instead of saying why or when, how can I help myself make the changes that are needed? I think so you have to ask the right questions and take action. And so part of this is having those, what I call crucial conversations, crucial accountability. If, if things are not working out, how are you dealing with them? Are you going to that individual and communicating, being respectful? I think that becomes a critical, critical part of developing a mentoring relationship is developing the art of communication. Mm. I got nothing more to ask or add. Like this is this has been really great. That's I'm, I'm going to listen to this straight away <laughs> as soon as we start recording. Then that leads me to to resources. We we like to get some some of our listeners' favorite resources um, because it's a podcast. I ask about podcasts. Are you are you a podcast listener? I am. I do. I listen to uh, a number of different podcasts. Would you like to? Yes, please. Give us, give us your, your, your hit list. Sure. Um, Whitney Johnson, Disrupt Yourself podcast. I'm a firm believer in. I love anything uh, that she, um, she writes about. She also uh, is an author of a book called um, The A-Team. Um, Brainy Business. Uh, I've been uh, really interested in a lot of the different behavioral economics. So um, that's a great podcast. Uh, the Michael Hyatt uh, podcast is a good one, Lead to Win. John Maxwell podcast, he does one, um, he does a quick uh, Maxwell minute every morning I listen to. Um, Coaching for Leaders, that's a great podcast. Um, and uh, I do a lot of TED Talks as well, so I'm a big believer in, in TED Talks. Um, can I also give a list of some books that I would yes, recommend? Yes, please, um, please do. I'd, I'd love to. An oldie but goodie, but I think is absolutely necessary for anyone in leadership. And I always say the moment that you become a veterinarian, you're a leader. Uh, in Search of Excellence by Tom Peters is a great book. Uh, the QBQ by John Miller, The Question Behind the Question. It talks about uh, personal accountability. Uh, the Ideal Team Player by Patrick uh, Lencioni is a great book. Any book by Patrick Lencioni would mm -hmm. be good. Um, Culture Eats Strategy for Lunch by uh, Kurt Kaufman is a great book. If Disney Ran Your Hospital by Fred Lee is a great book. Uh, let's see, Crucial Conversations by uh, Carrie Patterson would be another another great book as well. Hmm. Oh, I, I had a thought over New Year's. I, I don't I don't like to call things New Year's resolutions, but it's but it's very hard to get into New Year's with, without thinking about how things are going to be different this year. And I've, I've I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks over the last year or two, um, and it's so much information because I get through, especially through listening through podcasts, you get so many good recommendations of books and business books. Um, and so much information to consume, and I, I worry that I don't internalize it enough. Um, so I've, I've decided for this year, I'm going to pick a book per course there and actually study it as if I would have studied a textbook and actually work through it instead of trying to get through five books a month or something like that. Mm. Can I, can I throw out a recommend, can I throw out a recommendation for a book that we actually, um, use in our, um, mentorship process, particularly before they become a practice, uh, practice owner or partner it's a great book. It's called From Bud to Boss. It's a great, great book. And it breaks down every aspect of leadership. 
uh, delegation, accountability, communication, uh, coaching, those types of things. And I, it's probably my favorite book for a young leader or soon to be practice owner. That sounds like an awesome book. Sounds like my, my, this quote is study material when I work, work my way through. All right. And then we'll, we'll wrap it up with our last question. Then we, we always finish with this one. So you're at a conference somewhere and you have the world's new graduate vets sitting in front of you and you've got a few minutes to give them just one, one bit of advice. What is your takeaway message? My, my takeaway message would be this, be a lifelong learner, have a growth mindset, never, ever, ever be comfortable, keep growing because in veterinary medicine, things are constantly changing mm. and, um, and enjoy. It's a great, great profession. You'll have a great career. It could be your golden ticket, but it's what you do with that golden ticket that matters at the end of the day. Fantastic. That's it. All right, Dan, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Dan. I, that was I, incredible. I feel like I want to come and see your clinics from here in America. You guys are always welcome. Call you and, and come, and, come and see it in action. It sounds depends, incredible. mate. We just all of a sudden decided we're going to open up in the hospital and I'm going to be your mom. So you, you gotta, you gotta I love submit, it. You, but she's you always gotta... for hire. <laughs> well, mom's gonna be a boss here. I'm not I'm the bossy mom. I'm not gonna be the boy. So never call me by my by my real name. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dan. That was awesome. Thank well, thanks, much. gentlemen. Have a Happy day. New Year. Have a lovely day. Thank you. You too. Thank Bye. You. Bye. Bye.